Welcome to Bite Size Battles. It was a seething hotbed of religious rivalry in 16th century Europe. Protestantism was on the rise, and Catholics weren't happy about it. Nowhere was this tension more evident than in England, after King Henry VIII abandoned the Catholic Church and set himself up as the head of a new Protestant church, the Church of England. What else is there to do when you want to divorce your wife for a new young floozy, but the big bad Pope says no? Henry's son Edward reinforced England's Protestant status, but when he died, Henry's daughter, Mary Tudor, tried to burn and hang England back to Catholicism. But Mary only lasted five years on the throne before dying herself, and now Henry's third child, Elizabeth, was crowned Elizabeth I. The Elizabethan age has been called one of England's golden ages. It's when England's maritime prowess began to take embryonic shape, when England's first, albeit short-lived, colony in North America was founded, and when profound social, political, economic and bureaucratic changes accelerated England's transformation from medieval feudalism to a proto-modern nation-state. But just to add some spice to the mix of all this, Elizabeth shared the religion of her father, not her sister. Elizabeth was Protestant in a country that had spent five years trying to be Catholic again. Many were delighted at Elizabeth's Protestantism. Many were dismayed. Plot and counterplot, intrigue and deception, fears of rebellion, assassination and overthrow ruled the day. And if that wasn't enough, England was faced with Catholic powers in France and Spain, and even to the north, while Scotland was riven by its own Protestant-Catholic split, it was still ruled by a Catholic, Mary, Queen of Scots. Elizabeth's reign, then, was a dangerous mix of conspiracies, persecution, the threat of war, the lure of love, and the dark depths of treason, tragedy and death. Right in the middle of this cauldron was a new kind of man, an expert in subterfuge, a creator of international networks of informants, a codemaker and codebreaker, and agent provocateur. His mission was the fortifying of Protestantism in England, the protection of the life and body of Queen Elizabeth, and the defence of the realm from enemies both foreign and domestic. Welcome to the second episode of Secret Warfare, where we look at the pioneer of modern intelligence, Francis Walsingham. One of Walsingham's most edifying experiences was close to the beginning of his career, as the English ambassador to France. He was in Paris, working to form an alliance between England and France, and to organise a marriage between Elizabeth and a member of the French royal family. Those missions were ambitious, given that France was Catholic, and as we've heard, religion dominated the political fault lines of Europe. But what really sent his negotiations onto the rocks was the massacre of St Bartholomew's Day. The massacre was a two-day binge of violence and assassination, 
targeting French Protestants and orchestrated by the Queen of France herself, Catherine de' Medici. Up to 5,000 people were killed. As mobs ran riot, many Protestants sheltered in Walsingham's home, protected as it was by his ambassadorial status. His anguish was great as he wept with his fellow Protestants while so many were killed in the streets. It's said that this event convinced him of Catholic bloodlust. He saw clearly what would happen to Protestants at home if England was forced back into Catholic hands, either through domestic rebellion or foreign invasion. He resolved to do everything in his power to prevent that from ever happening. Thankfully for him, his power to do so was about to grow enormously. Returning home without a French alliance in 1573, he told the Privy Council, the group of the country's most senior lords who advised Elizabeth, I think there is less peril to live with the French as enemies than as friends. He quickly joined the Privy Council, becoming Elizabeth's principal secretary, responsible for handling all domestic and foreign affairs, including all diplomatic communication with ambassadors. He used this position to gather together a vast network of spies and informants throughout France, Scotland, the Low Countries, Spain, Italy, the Ottoman Empire and North Africa. He employed expert cryptographers like Thomas Philippe's, who decoded letters and forged his own, and people like Arthur Gregory, who could lift and repair wax seals on letters, allowing Walsingham to read their contents undetected. If something was going to go down, he wanted to know about it, and usually did. He directed this intelligence gathering against Catholics in England and Scotland, working hard to penetrate their circles in an attempt to uncover plots which he was certain existed. He particularly distrusted Mary, Queen of Scots, and her supporters. When Mary had fled to England after being ousted by Scottish Protestants in 1568, she was placed under house arrest, living a comfortable but highly restricted life. Many, though, viewed her treatment with disgust, and she had thousands of Catholic sympathisers. One of those was a man named Francis Throckmorton, an Englishman orchestrating an international plot to overthrow Elizabeth, rescue Mary and reinstate Catholicism in England. Letters from the Spanish ambassador in London were found on a messenger bound for Scotland, which indicated the conspiracy of France and Spain to invade England in concert with a domestic uprising. Throckmorton had been busy. So Walsingham had a spy placed in the French embassy in London, who reported that none other than Throckmorton had visited the French ambassador there. So, after surveilling him for another six months, Walsingham had Throckmorton arrested and tortured on the rack. The rack was a particularly brutal method of torture. It meant the victim being strapped on a rectangular wooden frame with a roller at one or both ends. The victim's wrists were then chained to one roller and their ankles to another. If the interrogator didn't like what they were hearing, they would use a ratchet to gradually turn the rollers 
slowly stretching the victim and increasing the strain on their shoulder joints, elbows, hips and knees. Eventually, the strain would become too great. The joints would dislocate and separate with a grotesque pop. If the victim continued to be stretched, the muscles would be pulled too far for them to ever contract again, leaving the poor wretch nothing more than a floppy pile of torso and limbs. The rack also let the torturer use any number of other methods on the victim, including various things with the skin, teeth, nails, and let's just say, hot pokers. Under this gruesome duress, Throckmorton confessed all the plans for the French and Spanish invasion to be timed with an uprising by Mary supporters. A short time later, he was executed, the Spanish ambassador expelled, and the plot destroyed. Mary herself was implicated, but there was no actual evidence linking her personally to the plot. She claimed that it was over-exuberant supporters running amok with no encouragement from her. But Walsingham wasn't buying it, and three years after the Throckmorton plot, in 1586, he set out to entrap Mary in an elaborate and brilliant scheme. Walsingham had Mary moved to the custody of a friend of his, Sir Amias Paulette, who housed her in a manor at Chartley in Staffordshire. Mary had been forbidden all correspondence, but didn't mind too much as she still had one remaining way to communicate covertly, by hiding letters in a beer keg. She thought the beer keg scheme was secure and unknown to anyone but her supporters. But Walsingham didn't just find out about it. He had arranged the whole thing. Using the expertise of his clandestine letter openers, he read the message of a certain Anthony Babington to Mary in July 1586. In it, Babington described a plot to free her and kill Elizabeth. This was what Walsingham had been waiting for. His men resealed the letter, had it sent on to Mary in the beer keg, and now waited for the coup de grace. Mary's reply. Just a short time later, she wrote back to Babington, giving the plot against Elizabeth her consent. Things now moved quickly. Walsingham had Babington and other plotters rounded up and executed. Mary was put on trial where she broke down in tears, crying, This is all the work of Monsieur de Walsingham for my destruction. Despite her emotional pleas, Mary was found guilty and beheaded at Fotheringay Castle on the cold morning of the 8th of February 1587. Whatever pleasure Walsingham might have felt at this triumph was short-lived. He had been receiving alarming reports from his agents around Europe since the year before. They detailed massive Spanish preparations for an invasion of England. The Spanish wanted Catholicism reinstated in England, but there was also more to it than that. Elizabeth had been supporting Dutch rebels against Spanish rule in the Netherlands, and her brilliant naval commander, Sir Francis Drake, had been raiding Spanish commerce in the Caribbean with audacity and flair. Now the Spanish decided enough was enough. Elizabeth had to go 
and Protestantism with it. England would be Catholic again, with a Spanish puppet on the throne. Walsingham's agents reported a huge fleet being gathered and built, enormous stores of supplies prepared, weapons and ammunition of all kinds readied. He also knew the plan. The Spanish Armada would sail through the English Channel, blasting its way past any feeble English attempts to stop it. It would hook up with 30,000 crack Spanish troops in the Netherlands and then drop them off in southern England. It's likely England's small army could do little to stop it, and anyway, the Spanish were sure England's Catholics would rise up and support them. There was no more serious threat to England and to English Protestantism. So Walsingham got to work. He strengthened the small English navy and bolstered coastal defences, especially at Dover Castle, facing the narrowest stretch of sea from continental Europe to England. He also fed the Spanish a false story about Sir Francis Drake, so that when the now-famed captain turned up at Cadiz in 1587, the Spaniards had a little surprise. Cadiz was a major Spanish port preparing a large portion of the Spanish Armada, and it was ripe for the picking. Drake, with just four galleons, destroyed, burned, sank and looted 25 Spanish ships before plundering his way back up the Iberian coastline. The expedition was resoundingly successful, and its strategic importance could not be underestimated. Thanks to Walsingham's misinformation campaign and Drake's naval elan, the Spanish Armada was delayed by a full year, giving England much needed time to prepare. When they finally did launch in 1588, the Armada was defeated by the deadly combination of English tactics and foul weather. It could not have been done without Walsingham's early warning system and powers of deception. The naval commander, Lord Henry Seymour, wrote to Walsingham saying, You have fought more with your pen than many have in our English navy. Sir Francis Walsingham died just two years later, probably of testicular cancer. But his legacy was great. He did arguably more than anyone else to keep Elizabeth I safe and in her throne. And he did it with panache, verve and ingenuity. He was a pioneer of intelligence and espionage methods that would later become the hallmarks of professional spy agencies around the world. It's possible that without him, England might have come under the sway of Spain and never developed into the global force that it did. Francis Walsingham, then, changed the world. Join us next time for the United States' first spies, the men and women who braved danger in British-controlled New York City. Often personally directed by George Washington himself, the group called the Culper Ring evaded detection, invented codes and ciphers, and sent messages by using laundry on a washing line. Several times they delivered information which was absolutely vital to the war effort, and they did it living side by side with the British. 
Without the Culpa Ring, the entire War of Independence might have been lost. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.